we are voting with our wallet when we're buying sustainable. We are voting with our conscience when we're buying ethical. And we're voting for our future when we're buying environmentally. We are being influencers all day, every day. We just need to recognize the value in that. How does being exposed to cultures different than our own allow us to see our own blind spots in terms of our lifestyle habits that may be questionable, as well as those of other people's? How has our current fashion industry come to be so wasteful, and what can we do as individuals to help the industry move in a healthier direction? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. Green Dreamer Podcast is supported by our listener patrons and our sponsor, Arbor Teas. Arbor Teas is a small family-owned organic tea company driven by sustainability in everything they do, from the sourcing, backyard compostable packaging, use of renewable energy, and more. They're having their only sale of the year soon, and I'm excited to get to share this with you later. But for now, to our conversation with Sarah Jane Smith, the founder of Magpies and Peacocks, which is the only nonprofit design house in the United States to disrupting the cycle of waste in the fashion industry with the collection, curation, and reuse of post-consumer textiles. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. My husband and I moved to Houston around 20 years ago from London. That was the first time we really had much to do with this country, let alone anything to do with Houston. So that there was a lot of cultural divides right there, straight from a London house to the Texas way of life, big houses, big cars, big closets, big trash cans. That was the, the, the biggest departure for us was how massively different things were here. A bulging industries supplying products to dispose of stuff. It seemed like everyone had full garages full of things plus a storage unit and closets full of stuff and it was such a disposable culture we just really weren't weren't used to that and that was not a comment on anything other than the amount of space there is here people just have room to collect things so for us it was a big departure a big way of life change I think that was the first time I realized how thrifty I had been that, that our life had been so different we were just so used to recycling and I'd grown up without a space to develop a relationship with a volume of stuff. Do you feel like this cultural difference, maybe, do you think the amount of space that Americans have compared to other countries in the world, do you think that has in part inspired this culture of disposability? Because people have so much more space, so they feel like they have to fill it up with something. It makes collecting stuff so easy. It gives you an excuse to hold on to things. It gives you an excuse to buy more things. So I can't, I can't believe those two could be separated. Mm. If you look at the way that small European countries work, obviously, I mean, that's where I was brought up. That was just a luxury nobody could afford. We had a small trash can we shared with a bunch of people. You know, it, it, you did just get rid of things in a completely different way. And I grew up, my mum taught me to sew, so I was always so used to thrifting and doing alterations and making my own clothes and 
I didn't know any different, to be honest with you. I really didn't think of it any outside way because I didn't know how to. But we never bought plastic stuff to throw away. That just wouldn't have made any sense to us to spend money on stuff that you just put straight in a trash can. So that, and there's an industry entirely thriving on it here. So it seemed like every time there was a holiday here, it was an excuse to buy stuff to throw away, yeah. which was extraordinary to me from decor things to eating stuff to party thing. Just the whole thing seemed like just an incredibly bizarre way of behaving. It's almost like when something is all you know, you you forget to question it. But yes. for you, that's not what you had known. So you were able to see all these things that maybe a lot of people don't even think about. Oh, entirely. And I felt like the bringer of doom. You know, I felt like I was the downer on a bench <laughs> to say, you know, let's not just do that. Let's see if there's a better way we could do that. And I totally understood it. I totally understood why plastic plates and disposable cutlery and all of that stuff. It, it made sense to me in the, what they were trying to achieve, but it seemed to spoil the event to me. It seemed to me like it was such a shame that, that it was sort of, um, again, I, for some reason, the word dishonorable kept coming up in my mind. It felt like we were doing wrong all the time. And that didn't sit well with me because, of course, everything went same trash can, giant big trash can with everything in it, food, plastic, glass, everything was completely opposite to everything I had ever done. Well, maybe it would have seen, seemed like a downer in the immediate term, but in the long term, it's definitely a gift to us. So you are having a positive <laughs> influence by picking these little things out. So thank you for doing that. I'd love to hear, so you mentioned your mom taught you sewing, but how did you get into the space of sustainable fashion? Well, I spent many years as an interior designer, so that gave me a big inside view of many people's lives because it's such an intimate line of work. You're in their houses, very one-to-one. -one. You get to know the way they live because you have to be able to solve their problems. You know, I was up against this odd juxtaposition of, of needing to create spaces that felt like home but were practical and valuable um, emotionally to those people, but also trying to solve very practical problems, like how do we store all this stuff and how do we have it out of sight without being out of mind because, you know, it's the out of mind aspect that causes the problem. There wasn't much of a, a worse offender than people's closets because at the end of the day, that's they, they hammer those every day. They get up and they find something to put on and they go to work and they're, they're so busy that they find time to replace or buy a bargain or add to it, but seldom really curate or pick through or sort out the the space that actually works for them most effectively. That was the biggest change, I think, in terms of where I, I saw I could do good was not necessarily reinventing all of the cultural differences, but seeing where that guilt purchases and where the ex-husband stuff or, you know, the spontaneous bargains over and over just as all those I felt like could actually I could probably address that I could mm. probably work with them on that in case our green dreamer is hearing about your work for the first time would you mind sharing what your mission is at magpies and peacocks and how you go about doing that so what we do we're a, a non-profit design house so we collect and curate post-consumer textiles and post-industrial textiles to uh, create new projects new products to sell um working with designers, makers, artists. So the way we do that is we collect donated material, whether it's clothing or 
ends of bolts, scrap textiles. And we turn them into new products. And those products are a vehicle for our message to keep fashion out of landfill, mitigate the damage of fashion in landfill, but, but also to encourage new designers and artists to work with waste material as a resource. And how do you think the role of a designer or artist has changed compared to the past decades, maybe in response to popular culture or functions they're designing for or problems or limitations that they have to keep in mind? Designers, by default, are problem solvers. If you are not a problem solver, you're probably not a designer. So I don't think it's changed so much in that. We just have lost the ability to do the things that we used to do. We used to take things and alter them and make them out of old stuff. I mean, it was just the way that, that we used to work. Now we have such cheap clothing, there's very little incentive to go thrift something and change it. If you can buy a shirt for the same price as a latte, then there's not much incentive to go to a thrift store and spend 30 minutes trying to find something and then spend two hours altering it. That just is is a change in the way that we are as human beings. But we've been part of that process and part of that problem. So what we're trying to do is just create create a situation where people are also part of the solution, You know, where they don't see themselves always as the bad guy the consumer as they're now being always labeled, you know, so they feel like they're in control of of all aspects of what they're doing, not mm-hmm. just consuming, but being part of the process. And designers, I think, have to lead with that edge too. But we make it a big point to be working in schools with students and emerging designers to make sure that we don't breed another bunch of designers who don't know anything other than working with virgin fabrics. Do you think there's been a devaluing of design and decreasing levels of appreciation from consumers of design because now there's so many options available and so quickly? There's, there's just become a gap between what works at runway level and what works at high street level, put it that way. There's very, the expectation for instant gratification for in terms of buying things immediately has meant that we've we don't run seasons anymore. We just, as I said, constant ebb and flow of collections, just back to back to back, of a permanent change out of stuff so that we can consume more and more. I liken it to like the tail wagging the dog. You know, once upon a time we would have leading edge designers making commitments on runways that would be filtered through by high-end magazines who'd be reporting all of that for us. We would be we would be learning where fashion was going by that. Now runways are more an entertainment, even though they are a showcase for innovation and new things, they don't represent what's necessarily immediately coming out to buy because it's already hitting a runway. It's already on Instagram. It's an immediate gratification thing. So we, there, we've done away with the processes of learning, which makes it very hard for a young designer to be anything other than catching up mm-hmm. as opposed to leading edge. That's not a good feeling going into the industry. It just yeah. means it's very different. That's all. I mean, There's always ways around that. It sounds like today fashion is more so about consumer purchases and what consumers want or what direction that the market is headed towards rather than really valuing the designer's vision as the first thing. Right. Even if you look at the way that people assess metrics on those things, they're all looking at what gets likes or what gets 
Now, in some respects, that looks good because it looks like the consumer is having the say. But but the other end of the spectrum is if we let everybody design their own things, the world would look a mess. Mm. (laughs) That's the good reason why people who are technically proficient and creative are in roles that are proficient and creative. So the idea of of the tail wagging the dog is it's not always a good thing. But I do see that people do need they do need to hear their see that their voice is being heard. For but sure. right now I believe it's the, the balance is, is not good. And do you think this shift is related to the increasing wastefulness of the fashion industry at all? I don't think you can separate the two. You can't separate the value of of how we value clothing which is now very much more a disposable item. The volume at which we're consuming, which is now 400% more than it was you know, two decades ago, you can't separate those things because now we are, we are creating an environment where it's hard to do really, really good, meaningful work if what you do is disposable and replaceable almost immediately. So if nobody stops and breathes and nobody's looking for influences or celebrations or moments of glory or ebbs and flows or even influences, we're not even really even looking at how fashion is being. We don't have the time to see how things are working. We're just sort of like, what's working? What's not? What's happening next? We are just constantly consuming without thought. Mm. it seems. And that's hard. I mean, that's why so many fashion houses are deeply collaborating. And they're deeply collaborating because they have no choice other than to deeply collaborate. They have to be working constantly spinning plates in order to create something new and fresh and something that hasn't been seen before. Or there's a little joylessness to that, Mm. that feels like, especially if they don't actually get to see it to follow through entirely, because they're actual one-to-one market is much smaller. The people on the high street are buying it knockoff, not knockoff, but, you know, inspired fashions based on runway within a week. Mm. So if we were to take a step back, what do you think it was that even allowed this shift to happen and to have allowed this industry to become so wasteful and for that disposability element to come into fashion? I think the state of the industry's largest contributor was the globalization of production. Mm. Just because of the, you know, and I'm sure you've heard that a thousand times before. The, but the the point is with the globalization is is what happens really on a one to one basis with us all with our stuff is out of sight is out of mind. When something is not, you know, you don't have friends and family working in textile mills, or when it's no longer close by you. That out of sight, out of mind attitude allows unregulated practices to thrive and human and animal rights to go unchecked. And all of those things mean that the the outsourcing could just be something that nobody had to be conscious about. That meant they could squeeze it up the production and reduce the quality and reduce the cost to such a level that they could keep just spitting out at a, at a huge rate. And coupled with the fact that alongside that we were creating fabrics that could be never ending they weren't like we had to grow them anymore like cotton they were these were all poly products they were oil products oil and plastics we were able to create these things endlessly and squeeze the production 
at a rate of knots, at such human cost but and at such planetary cost. But we were able to do that because we were able to do it hiding in plain sight, effectively. Mm. We currently stand at around 85% of everything we wear going to landfill. Now, that's around 12.5 million tons in the US, I believe. But more important to us is that that's like $100 billion of wasted material that is not dead yet. It's just at the end of our interest in it. So I said we consume around about 400% more than our parents did in terms of clothing. But the biggest difference is, of course, that volume is massive. But what has changed is about 80% of that won't biodegrade because it's a poly now. It's a it's a plastic, it's an oil-based product. So even if sending to landfill, which it clearly isn't a great idea, but even if it, it wouldn't biodegrade, it won't, in hundreds of years won't. So we have a perfect storm, not only of toxic pollution created by a really unregulated industry. We have all of the excessive water consumption in cotton growing and labor abuses and lack of regulation within all of those things, they've created a massive freight train of problems for the planet. But I would say a large portion of that is wrapped up in the oil industry because we're, it's so parallel with that. You know, we rely on it to ship from manufacturers to sweatshops and sweatshops to distribution and then to retail. And then at the end of that, we when we finish with it, we're bailing and selling it and shipping it again to... Um, developing countries so it's like we can't separate this industry from oil so it has become just the, a ticking time bomb mm. there are lots and lots of improvements being made now in supply chains and definitely more organizations being held accountable for their violations but that has been very slow and coming and it takes giant big things to happen like the collapse of Ranakalar Plaza you know, all of those of the things that have been industry changing to to shame the industry into change. There is light at the end of the tunnel, but the tunnel is still hugely long mm. and really hard to, to circumnavigate because they are also interlinked. I mean, pollution is so interlinked with, you know, the, the toxic toxicity is all, all the way through the production level. But then when you add effectively modern day slavery and animal abuse and I mean we have almost every rock you look under is just simply a hidden path of destruction so that's really hard to circumnavigate especially as individuals to see how we can affect change within that. Mm. And Magpies and Peacocks is the only nonprofit design house in the nation. What do you think acting as a nonprofit has allowed you to do that operating as a business may not have? That's a really good question, actually. We get that one a lot. And actually, we've questioned that ourselves many times, too, because, of course, we really wanted to do this on a, on a, a scalable way. But that we felt like if we couldn't involve schools, if we couldn't involve education, and we couldn't make donations tax deductible, that we wouldn't be able to win hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. So for us, we felt like we needed to offer people an alternative for for their stuff by coming directly to us and making it tax deductible. But we also wanted to make sure that schools recognized that this was something safe, an environment safe to work within, that was a trustworthy thing, that they could partner with us 
so that students would be working on virgin fabrics, that we would be able to build a bunch of graduate designers who would be knowledgeable and they would learn from deconstruction, reconstruction. They would be better all-round individuals uh, knowing how to move forward, making ethical and sustainable decisions. So for us, it needed to be wrapped in a nonprofit. As we move forward, there are some areas of uh, remanufacturing, which we may end up putting in a for-profit area. But that's really just a, an equipment and a decision that we need to make in order to scale. But we really always want to keep one foot in nonprofit life just because we really need to be able to help at grassroots level. And finally, when it comes to clothing disposal, other than upcycling, which is just maybe where the entire fabric from a t-shirt is cut and directly made into something else, like a pouch. My understanding is that beyond upcycling, different types of fabric would have different options in terms of what they can be turned into or how much value they have when they're disposed of. So can you expand on this? What do we need to know about the recyclability and ease of responsible disposal of different types of fabrics? What we we need to to try to make sure people understand is that whilst all of the thrift stores try and do right by the volume that we put through them. They really only resell about 10% of what we're putting out there. So that sounds like a really sad and miserable amount that they can go through. But if you think about how much we've increased our consumption, that isn't really surprising. Most of us are not avid shoppers there yet. So we need to increase the volume of people who thrift as well as increase the amount of people who don't put stuff in landfill. There are still very few fabrics that just biodegrade. Cotton is a great biodegrader, but it's also a huge consumer of water and pesticides, so it's not necessarily a solution. The point for us is to keep everything at a landfill. We work with all kinds of organizations. We take interior design material, upholstery fabrics, everything through to T-shirts and, you know, whatever it is. There is definitely always a way. Now, we curate that stuff. We figure out what gets remade, what gets reworked, what gets redistributed. And by that, we work out who what organizations are doing back-to-work programs or supplying dresses for kids who otherwise wouldn't have prom dresses or all of those sorts of things have genuine, real-life, useful second use. So keeping things at a landfill, first priority. Second priority, what is the most useful thing to do with this material? And how about in the industry? So when people recycle their clothes in those boxes that collect clothing to be recycled. Is there a difference in terms of what happens to the clothing depending on what that fabric is, or do they all just go to one place? Those large boxes that that, that you can generally, uh, on the side of the road, deposit clothing and textiles in are, are largely straight to repackers. The responsibility of the repacker is to bail and sell that to developing countries. Now, China has banned our textile waste. And East Africa has been trying to for a few years. And as some of the largest consumers of our secondhand waste, that's a big issue for us. It is right that they've done that. This is not um, something, in our opinion, for sure, that is the way forward. But it has been a solution for this country. Again, out of sight, out of mind, another way that we can make money on our trash. But it does end up flooding their markets. It can be very damages to their economic communities. So for us, it's not it, it's not the way forward. So 
actually that you know in many respects having the problem back in our own soil is 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 probably the only way we'll fix it so at the same time that we encourage people to upcycle designers to use upcycled fabrics and for consumers to shop more secondhand we also definitely need to reduce the number of stuff the new stuff that we bring out that we purchase and put out into the the marketplace in the first place because clearly right now we can't handle the amount of stuff being thrown out. The demand for secondhand items is nowhere close to the supply of things being disposed of. So how do you think we can best encourage a less disposable culture going forward, given that that first part of the equation is still pretty out of control? Yes. And, you know, that's the number one question, isn't it? What can we do as individuals? That, and it's such a hard thing to just discuss with anyone on a, on a human level because we all look at ourselves and think, well, how, in the, how can I change any of that, that I'm not responsible for any of that? But being a conscious consumer is actually really worthwhile. I mean, we are, we are at a point where you are an individual, of course, but you are also in the that you're an advocate or an ambassador or more importantly, an influencer for your planet. And so people do look at your behavior there's someone always better and doing more. But at the end of the day, you are an influencer. We all are. Whether you're standing next to somebody in a grocery store who doesn't take plastic or you're behind somebody in a store buying clothing and they're checking the label for the origin of the fabric or where it's made. Those are influencer moments. They're just daily influencer moments. They're not social media. They're not making anything. But those things count. It's effectively like our vote. We are voting with our wallet when we're buying sustainable. We are voting with our conscience when we're buying ethical. And we're voting for our future when we're buying environmentally. We are being influencers all day, every day. We just need to recognize the value in that. It isn't just in pictures or in, in being notable for it. it mm. You know, we, we all see people who influence us on a daily basis. We just need to give ourselves credit for that and make those changes where we can. And we all make changes where we can when we have the room to. So the more we can do to make it easier, the better it is for the planet. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and passion with us. We would, of course, love to keep learning from you and supporting your work. So what is next for you and where can we follow you online? We are just back from London Fashion Week where we showed two fully upcycled collections. That was a great honor. Again, our products are our message, so it's important for us to get that to as large audience as possible. Um, we have a UK ambassador just back from the UN meeting in Nairobi representing Sustainable Fashion Alliance, and we'll be joining them again in New York City when they reconvene in July. But Earth Month is always busy for us, so check in on what we are, what we do on social media, and obviously we're on Instagram at Magpies Peacocks, and our website is magpiesandpeacocks.org. So just check in with us and find out what we're up to. And we'd love to hear from you. If you want to get hold of us, you can contact us on info at magpiesandpeacocks.org. It is Earth Month, and our sponsor, Arbor Tees, is having their only sale of the year on Earth Day, April 22nd, where everything will be 15% off. So bookmark the date if you or your loved ones enjoy drinking organic tea and you'd like to try out Arbor Tees. Beyond their loose leaf and organic certified teas, they're the first and only company to package all their teas in backyard compostable packaging, their operations run on solar energy, and all of their business efforts are offset by Carbon Fund. To shop 
Arbor Teas Sustainable Organic Teas, just head to arborteas.com. That's A-R-B-O-R-T-E-A-S dot com. And again, it's April 22nd, Earth Day, when you'll get 15% off everything. For now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's one uplifting or enlightening social media account or publication you follow? Ellen MacArthur was super important for us. I'm a bit of a nerdy midnight reader. (laughs) And that was such an important, we haven't touched on circular economy much today, but that's such an important part of what we do and what we teach. And Ellen MacArthur was really pivotal in that part. I'm a Twitter reader. So of course, I look at fashion for good and fashion revolution. I'm sure a lot of your listeners also do that too. But I would say probably Ellen MacArthur was an important thing for us. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? Well, that one has to be Rome wasn't built in a day because this takes patience and perseverance in terms of what we're doing. But that was a, you know, I think that's probably our biggest takeaway is is you have to be patient. You want to be able to change as much as you can as soon as you can. But at the end of the day, it's patience and perseverance. What are you working on right now for your health? Not a lot. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But we do make a point of of doing the things that we love, drinking wine, cooking good food with my husband. That's important. And and loving on all our dogs, even though they are disruptive when I'm on the phone. But uh, yeah, so yeah, drinking wine, cooking good food with my husband and loving on our dogs. Um, What are you working on right now to live more sustainably? Curating waste. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, it doesn't sound sexy. It isn't sexy. But keeping things separated in the waste stream is the only way to preserve them as a resource for reuse. So do you mean just disposing of things responsibly? Yes, keeping everything separated. You know, if if it's glass, keep glass. If If it's plastic, foils, cardboards, nothing when it's mixed will be recycled. The the process is too difficult. The hill is too steep. So keeping separated waste stream is the only way to make that happen. And that's difficult. You got to find somewhere that takes it all separately. But that's my thing. What makes you most hopeful right now about our planet? My team, our interns and our redesigners, because if we didn't have a constant stream of people who were lit up about what we did, it would be hard to be hopeful. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? I do love the Margaret Mead quote, and this is the one we use the most when we're, um, which is never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in and for your continued dedication and commitment to helping realize a sustainable future. You can become a patron of the show and join our Green Dreamer network by going to greendreamer.com support. As always, you can find the show notes at greendreamer.com 128 for episode 128. Reach me with feedback on how we can improve the show for you through the website's contact page. And you can find me on Instagram at Kamea Shane and at Green Dreamer Podcast. Finally, as we're wrapping up, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.